Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at at BMB21. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. All right, welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. Today, I have the author of Diligent Dollar, one of my favorite blogs, who will remain anonymous for the course of this podcast. We'll call him Diligent. Uh, Diligent, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Ben. Good to be here. Cool. So for those who don't know, Diligent Dollar, I, I think, covers just a diverse set of names. I mean, I think some blogs are very focused on technology or SaaS nowadays. If you're reading Diligent Dollar, you're reading about everything from home construction companies uh, to kind of premium retail, like Canada Goose was a recent one you did. Um, and you even got some tech in there, too. So you, you just, you're, pretty, you're pretty broad. You generate a ton of ideas. I'm wondering, how do you discover all these names? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't really have a great answer. Um, I would say some things sort of spontaneously fall into my radar that I want to do more work on. Um, you know, one thing that I would say I do consistently is before I go to bed each night, I actually will just scroll earnings calls or 8Ks that were released during the day and you know, a lot of times just organically, I'll find names that, you know, I'd never heard of before that sound interesting. And honestly, you know, a name that you and I have talked about in the past, but that's how I found out about True Opinion before it became like a really big battleground stock uh, was I just sort of was scrolling through earnings results. I saw they reported earnings. It struck me that the business was much much stronger than I expected. Um, and it was also something in a space where I was trying to find an investment um, on a theme of uh, the humanification of pets. Um, seemed to be a common theme, so I was sort of looking out for uh, an investment in that space. And so I would say that's a pretty organic way of finding something. Now, full disclosure, you know, true pain is a small position. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to, you know, your listeners as a big holding and it's, you know, it's not something that I would say I traditionally will invest in, but I do think it had a lot of merits that, you know, I thought it, it warranted a small investment. Yeah, I figure now that you're talking about, we can jump into True Opinion. Um, I know one thing you mentioned that caught your eye um, is the investor letter. Um, I think it, it might have been uh, uh, Bluegrass Capital was on a podcast recently. It was saying if you know you put out an investor letter as a company, you're already in the top five percent of companies in terms of providing information. Uh, when, when you're reading the Trupanion letters, anything pop out specifically as doing a good job of telling your story and helping you understand the business better? Yeah, I would say first of all, I think it's really interesting. He takes a lot of time. It's clear to write those out um, and. Any CEO who's, you know, they've got to deal with running a whole company, but also catering to shareholders. The fact that he takes the time to go through and say, this is how I'm thinking about the business and also explain to his shareholders, here's what I'm going to be doing with your capital. So I think one thing that he puts really up front and really kind of amazed me, it almost uh, reminded me of Jeff Bezos's early letters. He basically says, like, it's still very early days. We are at an advantage because we've been doing it so much longer than everyone else. And I think he try just tries to point out like, yes, this is pet insurance. That's what Trupanion does. Um, but it's, you shouldn't necessarily think about it like a normal insurance company. It's not like they have to hold huge reserves for unforeseen events. I mean, at the end of the day, these are dogs and you can probably model out what you think a traditional cat or dog vet bill will be and they can um you know using models figure out what what's the right profitability to charge for um and so they have really good data there but then they also had really strong cohort data and he would just point out that like hey for every dollar i'm spending we traditionally earn you know a 20 30 40 percent irr on each one of these investments 
And, you know, this is something that I talk a lot about on the blog, but when a company is in its very early stages and is able to earn, you know, these 20, 30, 40% IRRs on its capital, I shouldn't be looking at it to generate free cash flow right now. I want them to put all of that money back into the company because I can't, like, if they were using that capital and just having it sit on the balance sheet or paying dividends, I mean, what am I going to do with that money? I'm going to go out and try to find another company that's earning similar capital. Those businesses are rare. So when you find one like it, I think you kind of, um, you know, understand that maybe the current gap financials might look ugly, but, you know, you're looking at this thing 10 years down the road. Um, and that's really what you're trying to bank on. So you talk about the next 10 years on Drupanion. Obviously, the previous results have been pretty good. I think it's something like 51 straight quarters of 20% revenue growth. Um, but thinking about the competitive position of the company, which again, you've written about for a ton of companies in your competitive series, um, what makes you bullish on this industry as a whole? And then secondly, like why Drupanion versus Nationwide and other kind of pet insurers who play in this space? I guess I'll answer the second question first. The f- First reason is they're kind of a pure play on on what their industry is, and that's just pet insurance. If you buy any other insurer, pet insurance is going to be an extremely small portion of the business. Um, I think Trupanion, you know, this has been talked about on other podcasts, but I, I mean, I do agree that when you live and die by sort of one product, you're probably going to be the best at it and you're probably also going to focus on it. And when other disruptions happen in your business, you know, you're not going to be distracted and pull capital away from, from that segment. So I like true painting as a pure play. I like that they've been in it for the longest. So they clearly have the best data, but another reason why I like it is that, um, you know, one thing they point out is that in some countries, the prevalence of pet insurance is just much higher than what we have in the States. Um, you know, they talk about in some countries, it's, it's, it's as high as 40%. Now, I don't think, you know, the US is going to get to 40% share anytime soon. But I also don't think that's what you need to underwrite to. I think it's a relatively new concept in the US. And I think their success has been pretty surprising um, so far that, you know, they're constantly growing, you know, the number of pets on their platform, you know, about 20% a year. So, you know, I like to see that they're having progress. I think it's still very early days. Um, And then I think you get upside if they are, if the U.S. is able to have increased penetration. The other thing that really made me like the space in general and to try to find a pure play was that, you know, millennials are reaching that age point where, um, you know, the late, the oldest millennials are probably late thirties and the youngest are called mid to late twenties. This is the time period where millennials are going to be getting married, getting houses, um, hopefully having children. But I think it's pretty clear that you can see that most millennials are actually getting a dog first. They kind of want that in-between step before they actually get married. And a lot of couples I know actually get a dog together before they're actually even married. So it was clear to me that, and you can also just see it. I mean, this is anecdata, but you can just see it in every other um, facet of our lives. You know, dog Instagram accounts have more followers than celebrities. Um, so, you know, I think that play on the humanification and the treatment of dogs as if they are your children is going to drive further adoption of, Hey, maybe this insurance is worth it because God forbid, if something happened to Sparky, you know, I want, you know, I want him to be covered and I don't want to have to worry about the cost. And it's, you know, it is a relatively good program. Um, and it does kind of make sense for the consumer too. Yeah, it's a whole new world out there. Um, <laughs> and it definitely seems like a COVID-enabled business. Um, I think one thing you do a really great job in your blog of is talking about free cash flow and using free cash flow as opposed to gap earnings as, as a way to think about the valuation of companies in the long run. Um, for Trupanion, again, I know they just went positive EPS. That's not a number we care so much about as opposed to free cash flow. 
Um, how do you think about uh, the cash they're producing, uh, whether they're reinvesting it in the business? Um, and just in general, what that looks like a couple of years ahead of time. I know the valuation has kind of jumped a ton the last couple of quarters, but let's, uh, let's think it, you know, back at when the stock was in the twenties, um, how are you thinking about this? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, the, the valuation today, if you were to say like, Oh, this needs to be uh three to 5% free cash flow yield. I mean, you're not going to get that today. Um, but again, with a business that's this early, I think they're in the, um, their life cycle. I think you have to remember a few things. Number one is scale. So they're still a pretty small company as far as revenues go. Um, they're trying to grow very aggressively and that's going to hinder their profits on the income statement. I mean, you see this more in SaaS businesses, but they're plowing money back into sales and marketing. Trupanion is, you know, trying to expand its territories, going into each of the vet offices to try to get them to sign up for the insurance, trying to get them to recommend it to each patient that comes in. You know, those costs right now are eating up a bunch of the revenue they bring in. But, you know, in the long run, if you think that, you know, increases their position in the marketplace, they're going to get scale on that in the long run. So free cash flow, I mean, it's, it's starting to become positive, which, you know, is kind of a good sign. Um, but, you know, what something the CEO talks about, and going back to why I think he's such a strong CEO, is he talks about, you can envision a scenario where people are so satisfied with the product that they're actually recommending it to their friends. And you sort of reach this period where the costs come down because they're getting scale, but the cost also comes down because everyone is so pleased with the product and that in turn, you know, I don't want to say flywheel cause I think it's an overused phrase, but it's sort of like, you know, it gets people to come into the door. Um, you know, I don't think amazon.com got to where it is by advertising a ton. I think it actually got there because people were so pleased with the product that, you know, they told their friends like, Hey, are you a prime member? Like, I'm able to get this stuff, you know, they're willing to ship this to me in two days. Um, they're, they're doing, they're going over and beyond for the customer. And, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos has a video. I actually linked to it in one of my articles. You know, it's like 1995. It's very early days in the internet. And he talks about, you know, people ask him, why are you willing to provide some of these products, you know, for so cheap? And he goes, and I think he talks about it in one of the letters but, as well, but he talks about how shareholder interest and the customer's interest are totally aligned. If the customer is extremely happy, odds are shareholders are probably also going to be extremely happy because that customer is going to continuously come back to them. They're going to see the value that's being provided by the service and probably there's consumer surplus and that's going to drive a significant advantage for the company that's in this space and probably drive more customers to you and, and so on and so forth. So kind of a long winded answer, but um, that I think it's, you know, something I look at and positively. Yeah. I like the Amazon case study as an example. I think we could use that as a jumping off point to talk about two case studies of businesses you've written a good about, about in your competitive series. So Fastenal and MBR. Um, kind of some some different uh, industries than the industries we're used to FinTwit covering. Um, so I'd love if you could talk about these two companies and kind of how they've improved their competitive position and how that's been a source of alpha for investors who were invested in them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a common theme for me versus maybe a lot of what FinTech writes about, um, FinTwit writes about is I'm trying to find companies that, you know, are really good businesses that maybe people haven't discovered yet or they're not the things that maybe CNBC is going to be talking about every day. Um, so I'm trying to find companies like that generally, you know, true opinions, a battleground stock, but I would say that's kind of an outlier and, and things I invest in. Um, another reason why I, I sort of wanted to focus on um, some of these articles on competitive strategy for these businesses is that, you can operate in a pretty unsexy business, but you can drive significant shareholder returns by focusing your strategy. Um, and, and just another thing I'll say is that um, another reason why I started, started to do this post was I just got tired of hearing the same thing in, 
investment pitches of this is a good business because it has high margins or this is asset light or the business is an oligopoly. So it has to be good. And, you know, I think some of those things are formed from the company's actual competitive strategy rather than it just being a good business. So I kind of wanted to break down, you know, some of those things of why, um, what, what makes it an actual good business and, and how it got there, sort of telling a story. Um, so, you know, we can talk a little bit about it. Like NVR is a home builder, which generally home builders are a terrible business. Um, I almost view a home builder as an asset manager, um, but you're trusting them to buy land, sit on that land and pray that demand goes in their direction. Um, they actually subcontract nearly everything. So a builder will buy the land, but then hire maybe someone to develop it or they'll buy it after it's already been developed. Then they subcontract to, you know, someone who's going to actually put up the walls and put up all the wiring and everything. And then, you know, they may have an internal agent team that will sell it. Um, but, you know, a lot of times maybe a realtor will sell the house for them. You know, it, it's, a actually low barrier to entry, despite, you know, maybe what you would think outside of capital, having the capital to buy lots, it's kind of a low barrier to entry business. Um, NBR approaches it totally different um, by using mostly optioned lots. And that's important because obviously home building is a pretty cyclical industry, as we saw in the financial crisis. Uh, and what ends up happening is when there is a downturn, all these builders are caught very long land. Um, and land is not a very liquid asset, despite what you may think about, you know, housing right now is, you know, there's been pretty strong demand, but trying to sell a lot of land without a house on it in a downturn, you're probably going to have to take a significant haircut on that. Um, and that's generally what you've seen in downturns is home builders are burning cash on the way up in the cycle by acquiring a bunch of lots, building them, selling them, and then recycling all that cash into the business. And then in downturns, they actually generate cash, but it's not because of something you want. It's because they have to liquidate these lots to survive. NVR approaches it totally different where they acquire these lots to build houses on but they actually wait until the customer has ordered the house before they stop, start building. And it's just an option for the land. So they generally have a very good sense of what demand is before they're going to hit that option. And if there is a downturn, then they just say like, okay, we'll just leave the option on the table. Um, you know, yeah, we had to sacrifice some capital for that, but it's much better than being long land. And what you end up having is actually, uh, a asset light, high ROIC, high return on capital business because, you know, they're so land light. So I think, you know, that's an interesting strategy um, in an unsexy business. And if you look at the returns, I think I put in the post, NVR stock since the 1990s has actually outperformed Microsoft. Um, so, you know, it's things like that that I think are really interesting. Fastenal is another one I did, um, another one that also had outperformed Microsoft. And again, an unsexy business, they sell nuts and bolts and fasteners. And their whole strategy was, I'm actually not going to go and sell in big cities. I'm going to go and sell in small towns. And I'm going to be the one-stop shop for fasteners. And what they figured out was that these manufacturing towns care much more about having supply of fasteners than they do about the price. And there's a case study in there of, uh, you know, Ford's, uh, Ford needed a piece or else their um, whole plant was going to be down for a weekend and it was going to cost them many, many millions of dollars to be down for just three days. So they went to Fastenal who had the piece and it was able to save them money and save the time. And it's pretty clear after you get bailed out by a supplier like that, um, you know, you're able to bring your facility back up. You're probably going to be pretty loyal to them in the future. And then the second piece is that 
you know, when you're selling these pieces that are really low percentage cost of a total project, like for Ford buying a fastener, you know, even if they're buying $50,000 of fasteners in a year, that's so small compared to the total project of building millions of cars a year. So if Fastenal goes in and says like, okay, this one fastener, instead of being $3, is $3.30, the customer is not even going to blink at that, despite it being a 10% price increase. So, you know, I think the niche that they've carved out for themselves is really strong. And again, you can see it translate into returns over the long run. Definitely. And I'd like to double click on kind of one thing you said on MVR. So that was really interesting. You talked about the difference between most home builders are along the land. MVR has an option, which gives them some flexibility in downturns. Um, it feels like a lot of these returns are made for investors when the stock's misunderstood. And then in hindsight, it's easy to say, well, they had this one competitive advantage that nobody else had. Is there anything you found particularly useful for before a stock takes off and is re-rated for saying, well, they, they are different and they do this one piece differently, which is going to be a competitive advantage going forward. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head right there of understanding the industry and understanding the players when you're looking at um, the industry. I think one reason why the home building industry is so bad is actually all of them do the same thing and they all compete the same exact way. And here you have a player that's doing something different. Um, and that alone should probably, you know, raise an investor's curiosity because it's like, okay, I'm looking at every player in this space and they're trying to do something different and maybe I should pay attention to that. Um, you know, it's true about hindsight um, and trying to figure these things out before they happen. That's the difficult part. That's the part where, you know, you make the big bucks by finding it early. Um, but, you know, one thing I try to look at that we can talk about is unit economics. Um, I think if you would have bought NVR Fastenal in the early days, um, I think one thing that you would have figured out really quickly, even though it was early in their genesis, is that the unit economics make a ton of sense. Um, and I know, similar to what we were talking about, Trupanion, I know for every dollar they're investing in one year, they're probably going to earn 30 cents back on that dollar in year one. I mean, that's the type of thing that should really raise your eyes um, and, and really draw attention. You know, I talked about NVR. The thing that you probably could have figured out really easy by having all the comp sets laid out is, wait, why is NVR generating cash every single year? and none of the other players are. And that I think would have led you down the road. So I think it's not, it's definitely not impossible to, to figure these things out. Yeah. It's interesting. You could have, you mentioned like you could have backed into it by saying, well, you know, this company is producing spectacular results. Like what qualitatively gives them that advantage um, on the unit economic side. Um, you recently did a post on AutoZone that kind of gets into their uh, unit economics. Now they're pretty favorable uh, so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about them specifically from the unit economic side and cover some of the stuff we've, that we just talked about. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think unit economics is extremely important for investors to understand. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's talked about a little bit more now, but, um, you know, kind of like what I was saying, if you can catch a company early in its growth stage and you understand the unit economics are really strong, then you know, when you hear comments about, oh, that company's trading at 50, 60, 70 times PE, you know, at a PE ratio that you kind of just are able to laugh and ignore it because you know that they don't really understand what's why earnings are, are so low. And I, I like to talk about the example of Dollar Tree back in the 1990s. They put right up front in their S1 and their 10K that, you know, it was going to cost them $150,000 to open up a store. But in year one, they probably would earn an operating income, most of that money back in year one. And that was 1995. You could probably figure out like, okay, I'm making up numbers, but let's say they have 250 stores. I, 
I think they could probably have 3,000 in the U.S. So I'm just going to join this for the ride um, and, and hop on that train. The same, I, I came to AutoZone with the same lens. Obviously, AutoZone is much more developed now. Um, and they, they're probably more saturated in the U.S. with their stores. But I was able to go in and look at, you know, maybe some of the commentary that the company had given. They clearly don't lay it out as simple as, as Dollar Tree. Not many companies do. But they do talk about like maintenance capex or how much money they're spending on IT. And with those numbers, you can kind of figure out, okay, how much capex and other costs are just baseline investments to keep the, the existing store branch going and keep the main uh, sales at the same pace and how much is like growth capex related to new stores. And with that, you can also back into, you know, uh, first year sales. Um, like, so I, I tend to look at average unit volumes and try to figure out what new sales contributed were from new stores. Um, and things like that. And then I assume sort of a margin level. And with those pieces of information, you can start to peg, you know, what is the return for AutoZone opening up a new store. Um, and I sort of got into a 30% IRR on its new investments in, in stores. Um, and again, you know, I talked about this with Trupanion. If they can earn a 30% return on invested capital, I want them to put every single dollar into opening up a new store. The problem with AutoZone is it's very mature in the U.S., um, but it is mostly a U.S. and Canada company, <clears throat> so they are expanding in, you know, Mexico, Brazil, some of these other areas where there's still a long, long way for growth. Um, you know, I did the post on AutoZone mainly because. I don't think people realized uh, that the business is still extremely strong um, and that a recession actually provides a lot of opportunity for AutoZone. Um, so this is sort of a segue away from the unit economics, but I'll just say, you know, when there's a recession, you saw this in 08 where everyone is gonna to start to fix their own car when they're a little bit more concerned about money. Um, and AutoZone for Q2 or you know, the calendar Q2 basically port, reported like an over 20% same store sales comp. And I think everyone was really concerned after, you know, I was kind of expecting the stock to rise on that because consensus estimates were way below that. Um, but I think there was concern about like, okay, is this sustainable? And actually, they reported August same store sales were up 16%. So it's decelerating, but they're still witnessing really strong growth. And another thing is that, um, you know, I said AutoZone is pretty saturated with a storefront base, but they're starting to utilize their branch network system to shift from do it yourself, which is where they've, they've really made their money to do it for me, um, which is most of the auto shops and things like that, where you're going to have someone else work on your car. Again, you know, going back to like themes of millennials aging and things like that, that's clearly a trend of people just want someone else to do it for them. They'll specialize in what they want to do. But, you know, uh, the boomer generation of I'm going to do this myself, and I'm actually going to take pride in doing it myself, that's kind of coming to an end. Um, and the other thing they reported in the quarter was that they're actually taking share in that space. So, you know, AutoZone continuously, they actually report return on invested capital each quarter themselves, which I really like. Um, but you're starting to see that this isn't just like a high return on invested capital business that isn't growing. This has probably a multi-year growth story ahead of it not just from you know a recession tailwinds, but actually they have a second area of growth um, that they're trying to enter into. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, those are the types of investments I'm trying to make. Yep, that makes sense. And what you said about the 30% IRR, like again, with rates at near zero, you can invest every dollar there you should. 
what's interesting in your post, you also call out they're buying back a ton of shares and the share count has steadily decreased over time. Um, how do you think about uh, reinvesting back in the business at a 30% IRR versus buying back shares? Like why not go all on the 30% IRR and zero uh, share repurchases? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. I think AutoZone's problem today probably is that saturation of, you know, they probably can only spend so much money on CapEx before it's, it might, you know, your stores might not uh, be generating the returns you want. Um, even with, you know, an international story and even with this branch network, um, I think their decision to acquire shares though makes sense because you know, management view and my view is that the core business is being undervalued to a degree that it makes much more sense to acquire a growing company with the 30% return on capital. It makes much more sense to just lower the share count for all the existing shareholders at that point. Just to comment on that, you know, I'm talking about, you know, why should I like that they're buying back stock and not plowing every single dollar back to the business. This is actually the same problem for a lot of the big tech companies is that if you look at a company like Facebook, which has an extremely high return on invested capital, which makes a ton of sense because it's an advertising business, it's all digital, you know, gaining an ex another customer onto their platform really doesn't cost them a ton of money. Um, so it sort of flows down to the, the bottom line. They have very high incremental margins. Their problem actually, despite, you know, I haven't looked recently, but I would venture to say they may, may have spent over $10 billion in CapEx, but they're still generating a ton of free cash flow. That's actually another problem for the big tech names is they've gotten, they're so big and despite them investing in so much months, despite investing so much money in the space, they still don't like, they still can't find places to put all the money. So, you know, with the big tech names, you see them doing massive share buybacks too. Um, so all I'll, all I'll say there is it's not a different problem than what some of these other industries that are also growing have. There, there is one company I know you thought of a very good use for some of its free cash flow. Um, Angie produces a little bit of free cash flow has some cash on the balance sheet, could definitely raise debt. Um, in a recent post, you recommend they should take a look at buying Yelp. Um, talk about why that makes sense for both companies and what the advantages would be for both. Yeah, just to back up a little bit for those unacquainted, I mean, Angie's list is a little bit different than Yelp in that most of their business is actually um, a marketplace driven by owning HomeAdvisor and a company called Handy. And so they actually charge the service provider um, an annual fee for being on the, the platform. And then they also charge a connection fee for whenever that service provider is, is connected to someone to work on a project. Angie's list is, is smaller and it's actually a little bit more geared towards, um, you know, the consumer paying to get access to the list um, and the directi directory of service providers, um, but they also charge advertising dues. So they'll help the service provider with um, you know, some of their advertising. In contrast, Yelp, I think we all know is more of a review database um, that is driven by the consumers actually putting uh, reviews on there of the service providers and say what you want about Yelp or anything like that. But I mean, I do think there is a lot of trust in those reviews. Um, people, you know, may not want to even go to a restaurant unless it has above a four star Yelp review. Um, Yelp has really been expanding, especially with what's going on in COVID impacting the restaurant business into the, the home service sector. So I think a lot of people don't realize that, especially in this past quarter, but even, even before that, even though restaurants make up most of the reviews, um, they make up uh, almost 50% of the reviews, the ad revenue share 
that Yelp gets is actually mostly driven by home services. So about 35% of their ad revenue is driven by home services and only about 15% is driven by restaurants. So, you know, I think Angie should look at acquiring Yelp for a couple reasons. One, I think it helps, you know, their sales funnel um, and it helps get the service providers connected to the actual customer. So a couple things that Yelp has, has rolled out recently is, are things like request a quote. So you can look up like, okay, who's the best HVAC repair guy in my, in my region? And you can click request a quote and then they'll, you know, you'll be contacted by um, the person to say like, okay, I understand your problem. Here's what it would generally cost for me to fix it. Um, I think the combination of, user generated reviews plus um, the an already established server service provider base only helps Angie um, accomplish its goal. I mean, their goal is they have a huge fragmented market um, that's very hard right now to connect um, customers to service providers and they need to figure out the best way to do it. And I think Yelp only helps them in that, that funnel. I think the other thing that Yelp helps them is honestly diversify a little bit too. Maybe this is an upshot to Angie's list, but you could see it becoming uh, a platform for connecting a bunch of other businesses to each other as well. I mean, uh, you know, Handy isn't just used for home services like, you know, I need a handyman. It's also used for cleaning crews and things like that. I think the combination of the two platforms just makes a lot of sense from that regard. I'm not just being connected with their algorithm. I'm using Yelp to find, you know, person that's someone that looks good to me and then, you know, um, connecting with them. So I, I don't know. I think it helps from a diversification standpoint. Um, I think it helps attack the funnel. And I think it helps that Yelp is mainly an advertising business that generates a ton of free cash flow. Yeah. I think the qualitative reasons you've listed make complete sense. Let's get a little bit into the numbers uh, because you cover that in your post as well. Uh, I think one interesting thing you call out is uh, Angie could acquire Yelp at a 45% premium and it would still be accretive to Angie. So like, I guess I question, how is this possible and why, is, why are they trading at such different valuations? What does the market see um, at Angie that it doesn't see at Yelp? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think Yelp, the market maybe misconstrues it as a totally um, uh, restaurant-driven business and totally driven by this review uh, platform that they possibly see as a risk from Google. Um, you know, Google is trying to launch Google reviews and make it as, as big as Yelp. Um, and it makes sense for Google to want to try to do that um, so that people continuously try to Google what is the best seafood restaurant in my area. Um, I think they see that as an opportunity to gain share on Yelp. The problem is it's very hard once consumers have started the habit and start to trust the reviews in place. You know, I can't remember how many reviews um, Yelp has on its platform, but it, it's something insane. Um, it's almost like when you think about Amazon reviews being a competitive advantage, Yelp reviews are also a competitive advantage. It's almost impossible to replicate that review base at this point. Um, so I, I guess go, making shifting back to why they can acquire it from for such a cheap price. I think Yelp is a little bit misunderstood. I think people think the risks are high in its business. Uh, and I think they also think that it's mostly a restaurant driven business when in fact, home services and other um, services are actually the significant driver. For why they, uh, Angie could acquire it at even a 40% premium and the math still works is First, driven by you know Yelp set trading at a pretty low multiple. Um, the second is that Yelp generates a ton of cash today. But third is I sort of outline general synergies that the two businesses would have together. So one thing I lay out in the post is that 
Um, in the LTM period, Yelp did, a, let's say, 150 million of EBITDA. Well, they spend close to 125 million in just general and administrative expenses. Uh, they spend 400 and let's say 50 million on sales and marketing. So my view is that when you combine these two businesses, you can actually save a lot of money on that. Now in the post, I'm, I feel like I'm being kind of conservative. I basically say they can only say, um, save maybe 5% of their current sales and marketing spend. But for GNA, I mean, you don't need two um, different accounting uh, places. You don't need two HR um, like centers. You don't, you don't need two firms helping you with Sarbanes-Oxley. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can save. So I basically said, you know, I'm nothing super scientific here, but I basically said, I think 50% of that GNA spend could be saved. And frankly, it could be even higher. So in total, you know, I basically got to around $85 million of savings. Um, and, you know, LTM EBITDA is a little bit depressed from the restaurant um, uh, side of the business. But, you know, together, I basically said Yelp EBITDA with the synergies is around 230 million. Uh, so even at a 45% premium right now, you could acquire that business for seven and a half times, which would be very good buy for Angie. The other thing to remember is again, because Yelp is an advertising business, it generates a ton of cash flow. And Angie also, you know, is EBITDA positive um, and generates cash, but Yelp is just such a cash flow machine. Um, and Angie is run by IAC, which isn't afraid of you know, issuing debt and sort of aligning the capital structures correctly for the strength of a business. I think we just saw that with Match, where Match is over four times levered now. But when you think about the business trades, I, you know, I don't know what type of multiple it trades on EBITDA, but, you know, it's, it's a safe equity cushion behind that debt and it's well supported by the cash flow. The same is true in Angie's case, where I essentially said, you know, they could raise a new term loan um, and use some of the cash on the balance sheet they have right now, which coincidentally kind of matches up with uh, Yelp's market cap almost exactly right now. Um, but, you know, Angie just issued bonds at less than 4% um, and they have cash on the balance sheet. They could issue term loan because they already have term loan outstanding too. They could issue a new one and repay that. And essentially I, I come to the math of, they would be able to pay for Yelp over four years. Um, I essentially got to almost 25% free cash flow to the first lien term loan, which essentially means they could pay back that term loan in four years um, and still own uh, and still own Yelp. Um, so from you know we talked about the qualitative why the business makes sense. I just think financially it's a no brainer. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about this from the Angie side. So I feel like Angie has been a popular stock on kind of uh, growth and value investing Twitter. Um, so Angie's trying to build this enormous marketplace uh, for home service. Yeah, it's doing really well on the demand side. It's seeing service requests increase, but the supply side not doing as hot. They've had trouble getting service providers on the platform. Um, you know, I agree with you. I, I think a Yelp acquisition could help um, and perhaps make it more attractive for service providers getting a wider audience. But let's say that Yelp acquisition doesn't happen. Uh, what do you think the future looks like for Angie in general, J just assuming that it doesn't go out and do M&A and has to kind of build that flywheel itself? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, I think the best way to answer it is actually to compare it to other businesses that have created the flywheel and talk about it with some of the challenges that Angie has. So if you think about like, why was Uber successful? Like, I'm not going to say I'm recommending the stock or anything because I'm not, but Uber was successful because you had an untapped service out there. Everyone had a car. Everyone can drive a car. Everyone can become an Uber driver if they want to make some extra money. At the same time, you know, you had demand. Um, you know, people were taking cabs. They were unhappy with the current process. If you could figure out a way to match that existing supply, which was high and could grow to 
a high level of demand that you know is there, you could have a very viable business. I think Angie has a much harder problem where in order to connect to a service provider, that service provider actually has to have a, a certain level of skills in order for the customer to be happy. Um, it can't just be someone who can drive you to the airport. It's got to be someone who maybe, maybe will hang a TV for you or you know, fix your kitchen cabinets or um, do plumbing work for you. That supply of worker is actually in pretty high demand, especially right now. Um, so there's almost, you know, if there's a limited supply of those folks and there's very high demand, the service provider almost has to be looking at it and saying like, why would I need to pay Angie? I'm, I'm all for increasing, um, you know, leads, but you know, I have a pretty good book of business and I don't pay for leads. Um, you know, I have a free page on Yelp and people just come to it and pick me up from that. Um, so I, I think it makes sense because th there's always going to be, you know, these skilled laborers and they're always going to want to have a full book because that's really how they make the most money is I leave one project in a day, I go to the next one and nine to five, my hours are filled. I don't really have much of a gap. That's just the way their business works. So I do think to a certain extent, any leads they get are going to make sense. The problem with Angie, though, is sort of what, you know, you brought up the flywheel. I just, the other thing with Uber is, you know, car ride demand is relatively steady. But I mean, how often am I going to call a plumber? Um, how often, you know, when you go on there, especially for, you know, home services and things like that, you know, they want you to price out a project of like, oh, I need to knock out this wall in my house, or I want to expand my kitchen or whatever. Um, you know, even if you're really pleased with what Angie did, I mean, is that going to matter for the next year? Maybe not. But similar to what we talked about with Trupanion, you know, I think the goal is that it's still such a fragmented space. Um, it's, it's clearly growing. Um, but I do think they just have a lot of wood to chop on how they're going to get there. Um, I think, you know, if anything, you're at least aligned with a really good management team and a really good owner with IAC that time and time again has been able to connect, um, you know, or like technology with industries that didn't have it before and they've had a lot of success, but I will also point out that in a lot of those cases, they had to merge and acquire and do other things like that to really strengthen the business. And Angie merged with home services. So clearly there's something to that. Um, but yeah, kind of a long-winded answer to say, you know, I don't think this is going to be a story where tomorrow you're going to see the flywheel really turning. Uh, I think it's probably honestly a five to 10 year story. Yeah, what's interesting, as you said, is Angie's a long way from having that flywheel uh, currently, but the market still appears to be pretty optimistic, right? It's like a two, you know, trailing 12-month EBITDA is like 200 million, and the market cap's like five right now. So it's actually pretty rich on a, a trailing EBITDA basis. I'm wondering, like, Yelp can obviously help it get to that flywheel, but as it stands, market's way more optimistic than uh, on Angie than on Yelp. If you could only allocate capital to one, have to choose uh, either Angie or Yelp, uh, which would you choose and why? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think one of the positives uh, with Angie is that, you know, they have a pretty clear goal of what they're trying to do. And if they, when you look at that management team goal and you say, okay, wow, well, if they're anywhere close to getting the market share they want, this is going to be a home run stock. I mean, this could go from 5 billion to 10 billion to 100 billion um, of potentially over 10 years. I mean, if you look at Uber, it's 60 billion. Um, and this, you know, potentially could be a big market. Um, the other thing that's a positive for Angie is that you have this management team that is willing to say like, okay, the stock is undervalued and we're generating cash. We should probably buy back stock um, and think strategically about our uses of cash. No question there. Um, that that's a really good um, outcome. However, 
I just think there's multiple ways to win with Yelp. Um, Yelp is currently kind of at a low point because everyone's sort of beating it up for its restaurant exposure. Everyone's pretty concerned about, you know, what's going to be the future of the, the company when in fact, you know, they actually have a really diverse revenue stream. Um, it's also an advertising platform. So, you know, their gross margins are over 90%. And the last thing I'll say is, uh, you know, I, I'm saying this complimentary thing about the um, Angie management team uh, about how they're really good at allocating capital and things like that. But Yelp also has no debt and they have over 500 million of cash on the balance sheet. And, you know, prior to COVID, they were buying back stock in mass. And I think as things settle down with COVID, I think they're going to probably go back and look and say like, hey, our market cap is, you know, pretty, pretty low right now. And we have 500 million of cash, we should probably be buying back stock or think about strategic alternatives. Like, should we acquire something? Should we, you know, should we do a take private? I wouldn't even say like a management buyout isn't out of the cards for, for Yelp. So I guess what I'm saying is like Yelp, I just feel like there's more ways, multiple ways to win multiple shots on goal. Definitely super interesting. And I think it's an example of like, you start doing the work on Angie, you know, you find this kind of uh, M&A opportunity that seems good. And then it gets you into Yelp and you think Yelp is actually the better kind of risk reward opportunity. Um, you do a work on a ton of different stocks. So have there been any others like that where you start looking at one name and you go, well, I'm not interested in this one, but like maybe there are some other opportunities related that could be better risk reward. Yeah, I think actually um, that's a really good question. I think, you know, Dropbox was going around as a, a topical name to look at. Um, I decided to look at their investor day and, and hear their CEO, which I think is extremely sharp guy. Um, I, I think actually Dropbox started to get me really excited about the software industry because if you look at Dropbox's EBITDA margins and their free cash flow margin, it's extremely high, right? Um, you know, I think they meet, you know, the rule of 40 and, and all of that. Um, and that actually, you know, even though I ended up doing a lot of work on Dropbox, I ultimately didn't get comfortable there. Um, I did look at the industry and say, wow, like software is in such early days. I can envision a scenario where in 10 years, these software names are generating so much cash they don't even know what to do with it. It's kind of like what we were talking about before. Um, and if you think about, I mean, stocks at the end of the day, all they are are very long duration um, financial assets and you care about the cash flow they generate. You know, I got really excited about some of these SaaS names that are similar to what we were talking about on, um, you know, what could their eventual margin potential be as they scale and they're no longer just spending all this money on sales and marketing and things like that. So, you know, while I haven't done a ton of work on many of the SaaS names, I mean, I think that led me to turn and say like Salesforce is undervalued. Um, it led me to go and say, you know, service now maybe isn't undervalued today, but I actually, uh, you know, did a post sort of exploring what could some of the margins end up being over time for some of these names? Um, and, and, you know, I think as they mature and they're no longer spending so much money on getting that first customer, some of these software names are probably going to have 50% EBITDA margins as they mature. And the reason why you have that is because they're spending all the money to try to get uh, customers to sign up. But then when the customer renews, that's extremely high margin business. So as the initial signups sort of are slowed down and it, you just have a high renewal base of customers, you're going to end up having very high margins. Um, yeah, that is a so topic I, I wanted to ask you about just quickly because we've, we've had some discussions about modeling and kind of the right level of modeling for looking at a company a couple of years out in the future. Um, you know, there's the old saying, but like you want to under, underwrite the future, not the past. Uh, when you're making your free cash flow models, how do you think about kind of taking expenses out and getting like a better picture of, well, 
you know, they spend this much on marketing today, but you know, in 10 years, maybe it will be some number that's a fraction of that. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. You know, I break that down in one of my posts, especially on for some of these startup names of, you know, what trying to back into, you know, what is the margin on a first sign up? And actually for a lot of the SaaS names, it ends up being negative. Um, and then as they scale and renew, it's obviously much higher. Um, I, I would say taking a step back outside of SaaS though, I mean, when you think about some of these businesses that are very early stage, um, I think, you know, trying to figure out what are fixed versus variable costs um, is one thing that a lot of investors really don't focus on that's really important. Um, I think that's one reason why, you know, I was kind of early on some of these names is that I was able to look and say, okay, yeah, sales are going up massively. Obviously, a bunch of these costs are going are gonna to move with it. But some of them are pretty fixed. I mean, like, look at the G&A cost for some of these really tiny companies. That's probably going to be relatively fixed. That's an easy example. Um, you know, gross margin, I mean, will be highly variable. Sales and marketing is also a relatively high variable cost. Um, but there is a certain fixed level to it where as soon as there's a big book of business, you know, you kind of don't have to spend the same amount of money to, to capture customers and things like that. So those are a lot of things I take into consideration. Almost every single one of my models takes each line item and breaks it into fixed versus variable so that I'm at least directionally, <clears throat> directionally right on all these investments. Again, you know, you and I have actually talked about this in the past, but um, I think that's one area of edge for investors who are actually are modeling companies pretty in depth is that, you know, one of the reasons why you get positive surprises versus the street is that, you know, uh, you know, like, oh, company XYZ reported $1.50 earnings per share when the street was expecting a dollar or something like that. You know, one of the reasons is because the street is not very good at modeling operating leverage. And so, you know, they'll be modeling a company a few years out and say like, oh, it has 15% EBITDA margins today. I think, you know, it's going to grow for the next three years. And I think it's going to have 17% uh, operating margins. Well, if you go through some of the unit economic stuff that we've talked about, if you go through the fixed and variable cost, you may find out that the company is earning, let's just say a 50% margin on every new dollar of business. And if they're growing really quickly, pretty soon that 50% incremental margin is gonna pull up total company margins really fast. So you're gonna end up with a company that's gonna have over 20% margins and maybe the, the sell side is not paying attention to that. Yeah, the operating leverage point is is really interesting. And I'm thinking specifically in the context of what happens when COVID dissipates and things go back to normal just a little bit. You've written about the cruise lines, I think, a couple times on, on Diligent Dollar. Uh, any thoughts that you don't have to go into individual names, but um, how do you think operating leverage for some industries will play out once COVID starts to dissipate a bit? Well, I mean, I guess as COVID starts to dissipate, for some of these industries, it's going to be extremely positive. Um, you know, cruise lines, airlines, movie theaters are pretty high fixed cost businesses that as demand comes back, it's going to be, you know, really positive. Um, for most of those names I named though, I mean, I guess the problem is um, how long can you survive in hibernation? Um, so if I were to contrast airlines versus movie theaters, airlines, are just have absolutely brutal fixed costs and it's very hard to hibernate those businesses. And if you're flying a plane around at 20% capacity, I mean, you're, you're going to lose money. Um, and movie theaters are totally different. All your employees are, you know, high school minimum wage, you know, people trying to make a buck on the weekend that you can easily furlough. And if no movies are coming out, I'm just going to shut down the theater. Um, so, and, and the other thing about like, you know, everybody points to movie theater ticket prices have gone up over the, over the years. And, 
yeah, movie theater only needs really, you know, 30% capacity in each, um, in each movie to actually be making really good margins. Um, so, you know, I look at those two industries and I, I sort of think, well, if, you know, I'm not invested in any of these, but if I were going to pick a, a center of the storm Corona name, I, I would probably be looking at the low levered movie theater names um, that I think can survive on the other side. You think we might be seeing a diligent dollar post on that in the future? I think there might, yeah, I think there might be something there that I might, uh, might try to attack. Well, we'll leave the listeners hanging. Uh, this has been a blast, Diligent. I, I hope we can get a part two. I'd love to talk more about movie theaters. I think it's a really interesting idea. Absolutely. Thanks, man. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you later. See ya. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com. Thank you.